Welcome to Bring Your Brilliance. Are you ready to find and amplify your voice? Looking to be inspired by those who are already out there making it happen? Listen in as we shine a light on those who bring their full, authentic selves to do what they love, make no apologies, and don't try to fit into other people's boxes. With your host, Carla Taylor, who, after years of being inspired by the brilliantly shining people she was meeting, decided others need to hear these stories too. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Bring Your Brilliance radio show. I am your host, Carla Taylor, and as we heard in the opening on this show on Inspired Choices Network, that uh, the reason for this show existing is because I have been meeting so many amazing people and brilliantly shining people when I've just been out and about and doing all the things that I do in my own work, and one of those fascinating, amazing powerfully positive people that I have encountered is the incredible Bill Myers, who I am so honored to have here with us today. And today we're bringing you a very, very, very important conversation, especially given everything that's going on in the world right now. So today's show is all about uniting the divided state of America. And my guest is Bill Myers. So we want to ask you first a couple questions. Are you tired of the divisiveness and the destruction that we are currently experiencing in the United States and around the world? And are you ready for a change and wanting to help create that change, yet maybe have no idea what to do or how to move forward? So in this episode, this very important episode, Bill Myers, he is a black man who is biracial with a white mother and a black father who worked as a police officer. And he's had a unique perspective on what it's been like growing up in America from both lenses as well as his own. He's an accomplished Emmy award-winning actor, musician, filmmaker, and educator who's now using his voice on uniting the divide and sharing how in his own life he created and actually compelled the change that he wished to see. So he'll talk with us today about overcoming the racial divide in multiple ways in his own life using his creativity and talent and now offering a path forward for those who want to do something to create unity and connection. So a little bit more about Bill. Like I said, he's an Emmy award-winning actor. He's an accomplished actor, jazz musician, filmmaker, writer, educator, and speaker. As a black man who's biracial, Bill leverages his background, talent, and voice through creativity, compassion, and connection as activism for social justice to focus on uniting the divide and compelling change. In a civic leadership capacity, he has served as president of the African American Jazz Caucus in New York City, a member of the Indianapolis Cultural Development Committee, and served as the president of the Indianapolis Downtown Optimist Club. Bill has received many, many awards for his work, including the Emmy Award that we were just talking about, and a commission from the Indianapolis Museum of Art to create an original work for Martin Luther King Day entitled The Music, Martin, and Me. He seeks to encourage, enlighten, and empower others through the power of entertainment to affect social justice transformation, bringing people together to help make the world a better place. You can find him at Bill Myers Inspires on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Bill, welcome to the show. 
Thank you, Carla. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for asking me to be here today on this important time in our lives. (laughs) Very, very much so. And you and I have talked in the past about all of these things, but as we were even talking and having our conversations, the world started heating up even more than it ever has before. And so I'm so glad that we can bring your very important voice and your very important perspective to the conversation. And I am just honored and delighted to be the one to help you bring your brilliance um, through this show and in other ways that we've talked about working together. So I always start my show asking a little bit about the background. And of course, you have so many amazing stories to tell. I actually told you that I think it could be like a whole Netflix series in and of itself. But so very briefly, just kind of walk us through a little bit of your background experience, and then we want to talk even more about how we move forward and what we can do, and even the word that I use to compel change, because you have a really unique way of um, bringing people to you and getting people to come to you and ask you to do the things that you've been wanting to do that you were bumping up against the barriers with. So start Telling us more about your story. I can't wait to hear. Well, absolutely. Well, I I was born in Indianapolis, Indiana, and as you had stated, my mother is Caucasian, uh, and she is from Arkansas and uh, comes from her family uh, in in Arkansas. There were certainly some concerns about uh, racism and things like that that existed uh, during the time also. It's important to note that we're looking at the early mid-1960s, a very turbulent time in America. And my mom uh, connected up and married my father in Indianapolis, who was an African-American police officer. And, again, uh, families were, uh, you know, sort of stepping back during that time that they got together, uncertain because it was not as common and certainly was frowned upon societally Mm -hmm. uh, to have interracial uh, marriages and things like that. You've also got to keep in mind that there were actual laws in the United States that prohibited that type of behavior. So uh, that is, uh, it's important to keep that, the time frame in which this occurred in mind. Uh, you know what I mm-hmm. mean? It's, it's very different than today. Um, right. So I remember growing up and um, very early on, I have a twin sister and I have a younger sister. And uh we were very safe and and very much loved uh and and recognized our mother as my mother and you know what i mean mother right. and father and so as a family there wasn't really a clear sort of any sort of distinction about white black it was mom and dad you know uh uh you know uh leading the way and so we mm-hmm. were pretty safe in that environment then you get a little older and you venture out into the world and this can be just going to the grocery store with one of your parents or both and it did not matter that's when you became aware that there was a problem and Mm -hmm. it was the looks and stares and uh the the sort of freak show uh look (laughs) and many times it was looks of utter hate and disgust and was accompanied by uh, very harsh language now, looking at that as a child, you don't understand really what's going on, but you start to detect uh, what hate looks like uh, mm-hmm. and, and what that sort of vehemence looks like. Uh, and again, you venture back home to your loving home 
and you are surrounded by love once again. Then you grow up a little, you know, a little older, you go to school. Very different situation altogether there. I remember enrolling in school the very first day, standing there, and my mother was filling out the information cards for me and my twin sister to enroll in kindergarten. And I remember her distinctively having a, a slight pause when she looked at the question of race. And I remember mm-hmm. her checking both of the boxes of black and white. And I recall the um, the secretary of the school, when she handed this card in, the secretary looked at us, and then she made a notation on the card, a correction on the card. I will never forget that because this is the beginning of my school. You know, this is the beginning mm-hmm. of that that part of my process and growth. And right. how my mother took a stand right then and said, absolutely not, because the woman crossed out white and just put a big circle around black. And my mother mm-hmm. protested. And I never, ever forgot that and never, ever uh, forgot that, not the incident, but the the purpose of that, mm-hmm. the importance of being able to be who you are in spite of right. what someone else thinks about that and uh, the strength of that, the power of that. And so these are the types of things that you sort of detect in in life and and you start to notice this thing called racism. It starts to become something that you can, you can see, you start uh, coming up and, and, and having your own observations Mm -hmm. about this. Uh, And so I remember I used to be a big fan of, of watching the TV. I didn't say a whole lot because I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what was safe to say. I felt like I really didn't conveniently fit in any one of those boxes, black or white. So I felt like sort of standoffish and would find things to occupy my time, such as, and you know, engross myself in television. I, I was a big fan of watching the movie musicals and stuff on television. And I remember watching this one musical called, uh, or movie musical called uh, The Five Pennies with Danny Kay. And he played a jazz trumpeter, a big band leader. And I remember watching that, and I was totally captivated. And what really did it was this older black man that entered the scene. And it was something about mm-hmm. him that just captured my attention. And so I fixated on him. And then later, he picked up the trumpet and started to play. And mm-hmm. it just went through me. It went through mm-hmm. me because I saw something that had such a profound effect of joy on me. I just felt so wonderful, and I thought, that's what I want to do with my life. It was mm. like having a, having, a, having a voice. I right. want to play the trumpet. I want to have that voice. And the reason was I want to make other people feel like Louis Armstrong wow. made me feel. And so I leaned into music. And then, you know, I, I could not wait until I was old enough to, to get into the school band program, at, you know, in, in elementary school. And so I waited and waited and waited. And then the time came, and we had this uh, preliminary year before, uh, which was with the song flutes. And we had to figure out, you know, uh, from there we, we, we took a music competency test. <laughs> and as a result of the music competency test, my sister also is very talented and she got into the band program, and I did not. And 
I, I will never forget that. Again, yet another barrier. Uh, and I remember just really not being able to accept that because I wanted that more than anything in life, to be in the, right. in the band and to play music because music doesn't really know color. I, and I, I, I wasn't able to articulate that at the time. But I knew that rather than me chopping up with a look of hate um, and, and having an argument or something like that, if I could just play music, I could somehow soothe and bring people together and find a source of common ground, uh, a source of joy. And I thought that that was going to be the way. So anyway, I protested and protested and, you know, screamed and cried. And my parents went to the school and, and, and talked to the principal and talked to the music director and so on and so forth. And so it was, it was a big episode and they, they went to bat for me. And I remember that the principal came back with a, with a, uh, uh, a compromise. And he said, well, the, the band director will not let you use a school instrument because he does not believe that you have any musical ability. Wow. But if your son is so determined to be in this music program, we insist that you provide him with an instrument because we do not believe it belongs in there. And so we're not going to do that. But if you do that, we will let him in. And uh, I remember, you know, looking at that and thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, this is going to cost a mint because we were pretty tight uh, yeah. know, uh, living off of a police officer's salary, you know, and you've got five people in right. the household. This was never going to happen. And I remember one day my father picked me up in the police car. That was our family car. We didn't own an independent car. So... Thank God for the police department because that was the only way we could get get around. Uh, so he picked me up and we went to a music store, Indiana Music. I'll never forget it. Walked in and the uh, clerk walked over and said, may I help you? And he says, no, you can't help me, but you can help my son. And he, my dad said, tell the man what you want. And I'm standing okay, in front so of this I'm gonna beautiful showcase. Okay, so I'm going to stop you right there. We're going to yeah. take a break. We're going to pause at this very full of drama moment that you're in the music store and you're about to say what you want. We're going to be right back. Again, my name is Carla Taylor. This is a Bring Your Brilliance radio show on Inspired Choices Network. We're talking with Bill Myers about uniting the divide, and we will be right back. We all have a personal brand. It's what people say about you when you're not in the room. What if you knew how to clearly and confidently communicate your value in a compelling way? Tune in to the Bring Your Brilliance radio show with personal branding and LinkedIn strategist Carla Taylor to discover the tools, resources, and inspiration you need to get started and keep growing. Are you ready to make your mark? Learn how to bring your brilliance by listening to the Bring Your Brilliance radio show every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, 9 a.m. Central, 8 a.m. Mountain, and 7 a.m. Pacific on InspiredChoicesNetwork.com. Are you a subject matter expert? Are you here to share your expertise with an audience waiting to hear from you in only the way you can deliver? Are you ready to have your voice amplified across the airwaves? Inspired Choices Network has a global radio platform streaming to millions of people across the world. Professionally produced and supported by an accomplished team every step of the way, you can broadcast from anywhere in the world knowing your voice matters and we ensure it is delivered with ease and efficiency. Eager to hear your message, the world awaits. Contact us today to become an Inspired Choices Network radio host. Email becomeahost at inspiredchoicesnetwork.com. 
This is the Bring Your Brilliance radio show with personal branding and LinkedIn strategist Carla Taylor. To join today's conversation, call in the U.S. at 815-880-8255 or Canada at 613-800-8736 or Skype at Inspired Choices Network. Or ask a question or send a comment by email at bringyourbrilliance at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back. My name is Carla Taylor. I am the host of the Bring Your Brilliance radio show. We are here on Inspired Choices Network. And just before the break, we are talking with Bill Myers, who was in the middle of sharing his story of how he wanted to play the trumpet. He'd been so inspired by Louis Armstrong wanting to move people and make them feel the way that he felt when he heard that incredible playing and the incredible music that um, really doesn't know color and, and brings joy to people. And so he went to try out. His sister made it. He didn't. He was able to have them agree to let him come to the program as long. Their their option was he had to buy his own instrument. So on a policeman's salary, driving in the police car, we're now back in is it Indiana Music, or what was the name of the store? Indiana Music. Indiana Music. Absolutely. You're at the counter. What happened next? Yeah, my dad, you know, told me, he said, tell the man what you want. And I just pointed at the brightest, shiniest trumpet in the showcase that was eye level. And I said, that right there. And uh, my dad nodded and the clerk began wrapping this up. I knew that we couldn't afford something like that. This was like uh, outrageous. It might as well have been $50 million or something. Right. And I I, I, will, I remember when the clerk set the trumpet back on the counter and he told my dad it was like, you know, $380 or something. My dad paused and looked at me. And it was the idea of him believing in me and that there was something, something that he was willing to do that I was so very passionate about. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know how he came up with that money. I, I, that story is still <laughs> out there. But nonetheless, the point that I want to make is is that when we are passionate about a thing, whatever the thing is, then it is absolutely possible. It is possible. And I think I wanted to start and just sort of lay a, a, a groundwork before we move further into this conversation. And, and so that set me on my path in the arts. I played the trumpet for 18 years. I picked up 14 other instruments along the way. Um, wow. I was playing an all-state jazz band, all-city jazz band, all-state orchestra, all-city orchestra, because I had something to say. And that was mm. my, my vehicle. That was my voice. And so I was passionate about it. And I know that one thing is, is that passion can actually override natural talent, <laughs> natural ability. Passion can can create the best. Sometimes it's it's great to be in the number two slot because you've got something to work for. Mm. You know what I mean? You've, you've got something to prove. I'm not sure if you're in the number one slot, you can become complacent. But That's when there's, true. there's a mountain to climb, you know, there's, there's a challenge before you. And we That's have a challenge a before this nation right now uh, that mm-hmm. is significant. Um, and has ignited a conversation not only uh, regarding race relations and and the the incident with George Floyd, but that has gone beyond just a police brutality issue and has opened up a a wound that has been there for 400 years. 
Uh, yeah. And it it really goes to the heart of why these things are the way they they are. Um, and and anyway, so I just I just really want to lay the groundwork because I believe that when we set our hearts and our minds to make something happen, something amazing absolutely can happen. But it does require a pretty intense commitment of the heart mm. to to do that. And uh, I, and I really wonder if we are at this time. I heard a a uh, an interview with Andrew Young, who marched alongside Martin Luther King in the protests of the '60s, and he remarked about the incident and and the protests of today. And he said, "I've never seen anything like this." Uh, he said it took us four and a half months to arrange the march on Selma four and a half months. And so we're looking at something that's far more immediate in the social media realm and, and that sort of thing, how messages and, and how this stuff just like really mushroomed out very quickly. But not only in the United States and cities across the United States, but started to resonate out in, into the rest of the world as mm-hmm. they examined their own treatment and thoughts about black um, citizens in their countries. I saw protests in China. I saw protests in Argentina. Uh, I, I've, I've seen so much, and it's raising this issue of identity, this issue of this mistreatment that has been going on historically to, you know, the African peoples. Uh, and, and it's amazing. And I think that as America, we've, we've been a leader for so many years. This is a great opportunity for us to set a fine example and step up to the plate and do something remarkable. Absolutely. I'm not certain I am not certain about the solutions or quick fix issues as it relates to uh you know defunding police or that the subject or the actual um problem is the police. That is a problem. Mm-hmm. But then you hear the discussion of systemic racism or institutional racism. And when you take a hard look at that, there are incidents and incidents over and over, about every four, five years, ten years that come up that highlight the police brutality thing. But we also have other narratives that are connected to that as far as institutions and racism that go to uh, education, uh, wealth inequality, um, joblessness, hopelessness. We've got uh, every institution you can think of you know, in America, has this stain attached to it, particularly when it relates to the plight of African-American citizens or black people in America. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, I think that this awareness, again, I think the George Floyd incident was indeed a tipping point. Right. More than it was, you know, just another act of violence, because since that time, I mean, you you get in the news feeds other episodes that are going on since that. Um, right. You know, thank goodness for our camera phones and that sort of thing. Uh, being able to record and share these things with the world. But let's not kid ourselves. These things were going on <laughs> before right. there were camera right. phones and all that. And I would like to share a, a quick story with a childhood friend I grew up with, and he uh we were kindergarten you know from kindergarten on i mean we lived blocks away from each other and he was a good friend of mine and i'd lost touch with him around 7th grade 
because he lived with his grandmother and he moved away. His, I think his grandmother passed away. And so I lost touch with him. And then I'm a freshman in at Broad Ripple High School in orientation class and they're doing the roll call and I hear them say, Michael Smith, here. And I turned around and it was my buddy, my friend, Michael Smith. I hadn't seen him in about a year and a half. We talked on the phone and sort of reconnected. The next day, I hear this story about an unarmed black teenager shot and killed by the police. And I found out that it was Michael Smith that was shot and killed. This was 1980, 40 years ago. So this is personal to me. This was the first time I lost somebody that close as a friend who didn't get a chance to get a driver's license or go to the prom or any of that. Um, and also, it was the first time I ever served as a pallbearer for a funeral. Wow. And so these are, these are the types of things that stick with you. So I, the reason I share that story is because it, it affects me. It's connected to me. And also to understand that there are a lot of George Floyds. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of George Floyds. Um, and so this this recurring theme has been going on a long time. And I think, that, again, this, this, this incident with George Floyd was a tipping point. And I think that we've done a great job with the, the reaction, you know, the protests and the, you know, we're not going to take it anymore, something's got to be done, uh, that sort of thing, the, the determination and the stick-to-itiveness of that protest. And I think that that's a good thing. We've gotten now the world's attention. Now is the important next step, which is how do we respond to this? How do we respond to this in a meaningful way? Because arguably any of the laws or any of these sorts of things and, and, you know, diversity training and sensitivity trainings or whatever these measures have been in the past, one would have to conclude they didn't really – worked so well. They right. may have been a band-aid for a minute. Right. We don't need another you know? program. We need meaningful change and we need to really shift things in a way that they haven't been shifted. And I know you and I had talked about the fact that it's not even just in the US. Like these protests and things are happening all over the world. This is this is a huge, way bigger problem than even just our country, but especially in this country. It has really, like you said, the tipping point has just worked everything up to a state where it cannot be ignored. And absolutely, that is now okay. So now what? You, Like you said, you've got our attention. What? What's next? Yeah. Now what is, now how do we approach this? Well, I do think, again, that we have to look at the institutions. And when we find, again, the systemic problem over and over that exists and kind of mirrors in about every institution that we can name, um, I believe that one would have to conclude that we're looking at symptoms of a bigger problem. And I remember an incident or a we were learning about the Constitution in the fourth grade. Mm-hmm. And I distinctly remember we spent about a week on it and going through all of the, the different pieces of it and that sort of thing. And then um, uh, the teacher was summarizing uh, the Constitution and then asked if there were any questions. And I remember putting my hand in the air and the teacher said, William. And I stood up and I said, I believe 
we should burn the Constitution and write a new document. She promptly said, thank you, William, have a seat. And it's ironic because what I'm trying to tell you is the, what I was able to see in that document and, and what we learned about it was in sync with the views and the stares that I experienced as a young child that came from both white and black people, quite frankly. But it's really important to note that it was very clear that that document that placed black people as property and women with the inability to really participate in a meaningful way in society, they were sort of second-class status in that document, I recognized that there was something wrong with that when I was in the fourth grade. Right. And so as I look at the amendments and that sort of thing, you have to look at the fact that the, all the oaths and all of the laws that are written subsequent of the Constitution are all based or written in context with the Constitution itself. And mm -hmm. one has to understand that there's a certain intent that the Constitution has. And at that time, it was written by, you know, essentially 20, you know, white guys. <laughs> and, uh, and they were doing the best they could. Mm -hmm. But the composite of America now is not at all 20 white guys. There right. are people that, you know, from all over the world who, who are proud immigrants from all over the place. We're immigrants also. In fact, it's, yep. it's important to note that historians talk about the two greatest sins of America, and that is the, native, the plight of the Native Americans and slavery. And we've never really dealt with those things. And I think that until we get our hands wrapped around these core issues that were at the foundation of this country, well, we will not be able to correct it and move forward effectively. So essentially, what I am suggesting is that we should draft a new constitution that reflects all of where we, have, where we are now, who we are today. We do view people as, you know, citizens and immigrants from various places. And I, I cannot see how we can possibly move forward without coming to terms with the foundational understanding. I fear that there is uh, – Martin Luther King spoke of the two Americas, one of milk and honey and, and opportunity and wealth and all these sorts of things, and then the other America, one of – oppression and and plight you know and and poor right. health and no opportunity and and uh you know spirit killing sort of things and i know that from my life i've been able to look at that you know i consider myself myself an equal opportunity bigot <laughs> you know because <laughs> it's not a black white issue with me it really is not right. um i you know so but what i am saying is that i do think it's very very important that we take a long look at this moment. And I think we have a tremendous opportunity before us that could really right some wrongs. I was listening to what's going on with the Native American population now with the COVID-19 thing. There's some real, real devastation going on right. right now. And I don't really see that we spend much time, whether it's in the news cycle or, or even our government, as, as far as being concerned in a real way with that. And that saddens me. Christopher Columbus yeah. could not have discovered America if there were people already living here. <laughs> so, right. you know what I mean? 
so this whole notion, I think that we have a great opportunity to get to write the record and to move forward in a way that brings us together by finding common ground and a common understanding. We are not going to be able to wage a us and them discussion because that puts people on defensive mode. You right. know, if I go to somebody white and blame them about slavery, that's well, you say I, I never owned slaves and you know what? You're telling the truth. <laughs> right. But the understanding of the privilege that comes with that is very difficult because we only know our life as we live it. We didn't right. do anything. It's not like we won a lottery or something. There was no there was no activity that we engaged in, but we are benefiting from something. You know what I mean? Right. In ways that right. other people that live next door are not benefiting from it. In fact, the you know, the slave the entire slave trade was about economics. It was about a workforce. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so one could argue that the wealth building of this nation, you know, happened on the backs of slaves, free labor. Right. Um, and so we have to take a look at that and figure out how and acknowledge, not that there's a blame that we hold, but I think that we can jointly and, and collectively take a look at the the real issues and at least acknowledge that that was probably not a good thing and come to some point of agreement from there i think that we can move in a meaningful way in a respectful way that unites us as opposed to again the us and them dynamics which continue to divide that is not right. the way to go we must recognize that we are all americans and that we all want what's in the best interest of america you know I mean? Well, and I think, you know, yeah, and when we, we set it up as a fight for rights that automatically makes people right and wrong, that automatically creates an us and them, it automatically makes it where someone has to lose if someone else has to be right. But if you come together and focus together Absolutely. on creating a solution and right. on, okay, we are now, and I think it's happening in an incredibly widespread way that, okay, this acknowledgement is here. Like people who weren't acknowledging before, who weren't speaking up before. Um, I know for myself being a white girl, um, a lot of times when I did try to speak up when I was younger, I was shut down. And I mean, I was very immersed in different cultures. I grew up internationally. I grew up uh, in college. I was in the Afro-American dance company. I was very embracing all of the cultures around me. And yet I was still a white girl who when I said certain things, I was then totally dismissed. And so then I just learned to shut Absolutely. up because I didn't want to offend anyone. <laughs> right, and right. there's yeah. that whole dynamic, yeah. too, of, of what can you say and what is yeah. okay to say. You know, the truth always works for me. The truth. It, it doesn't necessarily have to hold a blame to it, but just the truth. You know, Martin Luther King, one of his great quotes is, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Mm. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only right. love can do that. Right. So we, we must find a mutual respect for one another, uh, first of all, and, and want the best for one another. And also how we, how we create an even playing field. You know what I mean? Because... Mm. Uh, mm -hmm. Martin Luther King seemed to be on to it uh, near the latter part of his life that it was an economic issue. Because if you mm -hmm. took away all the oppressive nature and you had real, um, 
the same types of opportunities in a black community. And, and they had, you know, and, and black people had the same kind of money. White people did, had the same opportunity as white people did. And, and there wasn't the black, you know, across the tracks mentality. Um, mm-hmm. I think that that alters everything because all the narratives that go with that, with the oppression, all of the uh, stereotypes that suddenly come to life, all the fear factors, oh, my gosh, I'm fearful of you because I don't understand. I don't understand. I mean, there's still so much about how many times have you been you know, to a black person's house and, you know, or a white person's house and had dinner together. How many times mm-hmm. have we really engaged and gone out of our comfort zone to grow because mm-hmm. growth is neither comfortable or convenient. And if you want that is a, a perfect proof of that, place go to, to the stop gym. right now. Comfortable <laughs> and convenient yeah. is where a lot of people have wanted to stay. We're now forced to be uncomfortable. So let's keep talking there. We're going to take a break right now. Again, my name is Carla Taylor. This is Bring Your Brilliance radio show on Inspired Choices Network. We're talking with Bill Myers on this very Very important topic of uniting the divide, and we'll be right back. We all have a personal brand. It's what people say about you when you're not in the room. What if you knew how to clearly and confidently communicate your value in a compelling way? Tune in to the Bring Your Brilliance radio show with personal branding and LinkedIn strategist Carla Taylor to discover the tools, resources, and inspiration you need to get started and keep growing. Are you ready to make your mark? Learn how to bring your brilliance by listening to the Bring Your Brilliance radio show every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, 9 a.m. Central, 8 a.m. Mountain, and 7 a.m. Pacific on InspiredChoicesNetwork.com. Do you struggle to answer what do you do because you do many different things? Do you want your future clients to know, like, and trust you? Do you want to make LinkedIn work for you? If you're ready for extreme clarity and confidence with opportunities flooding your LinkedIn inbox, Carla Taylor's Bring Your Brilliance Coaching Masterminds and Workshops give you the exact steps to get it done. Don't have time to do it yourself? Carla's LinkedIn Content Ghostwriting Service is exactly what you need. Schedule your free consultation today at bringyourbrilliance.as.me or go to bringyourbrilliance.net. Have you ever had a song touch your heart so deeply that you could swear it was written just for you? I'm Gentle Sparrow. And I'm Bridie Latona. And we want to give you a gift that will change your life, your soul song. We lead you in a guided meditation to unlock your highest joy. And then we write the song that your soul wants you to hear. Your soul song is yours to treasure and guide you for the rest of your life. Visit www.gentlesparrow.love to schedule your soul song today. That's www.gentlesparrow.love. Every step on my path, I thank God for what I feel. This is the Bring Your Brilliance radio show with personal branding and LinkedIn strategist Carla Taylor. To join today's conversation, call in the U.S. at 815-880-8255 or Canada at 613-800-8736 or Skype at Inspired Choices Network. Or ask a question or send a comment by email at bringyourbrilliance at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. 
Welcome back to Bring Your Brilliance. I'm your host, Carla Taylor. We are here talking with Bill Myers. And Bill, I want to jump back into this conversation, but before we do, could you please let our listeners know how to find you and and maybe what to reach out to you for? Uh, The best way to find me uh, is to probably go onto Facebook. Um, I have my page there. It is Bill Myers Inspires. And uh, that, that's a good place to find me. I'm also on Instagram at Bill Myers Inspires. And uh, <laughs> my Twitter handle is at Bill Myers Inspires 1. So, okay. Uh, there, there it be. There it be. So. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And so we're talking about, we just were before the break talking about how it's really <laughs> a matter of needing to grow and that growth is neither comfortable or convenient. And we've talked a lot about how all these factors are at play and the need, you know, you talked about having a new constitution and doing some things differently. And I think there's definitely um, a lot of people wanting that or desiring a new path forward, but it's also really hard to bring people together who, who don't normally see eye to eye and aren't maybe even willing to right now, except for the fact that, because it's so big right now and it's so poised and ready to, okay, we have to do something. We have to right right now. And one of the things that I've so admired about you and your story and the way that you've gone about creating the change in your life, and I don't know if we have time to get into all of the amazing stories of what you've done, but I know you had shared with me about, um, you know, wanting to change, like you even talked about joining the choir, like you talked about fighting to be able to be in the band and, and how you were able to overcome that and then, you know, prove everything, everyone and everything wrong about your, your ability and your passion for music. Um, crossing the divide when you were able to not go and force your way into the choir, but actually have yourself showing up in a way that compelled people to actually want you there. I would love if you could briefly tell us that story. I'd also love, and I don't know if we're going to have time to get into this, but um, you you won an Emmy. I mean, that's amazing. That's fantastic. And yet yeah. you didn't <laughs> tell people right away. And you held on to that, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about that too. But I know we've only got about you know twelve or thirteen minutes left. But I would love if okay. you could maybe wrap a little bit of that into this, and then really, what what do you see from your perspective as how we actually do this? Okay, that's a lot. Well, <laughs> oh yeah, that's okay. Well, well, let, let let me put my tennis shoes on. Here we go. All right. <laughs> okay, so here we go. When I was when I was at Broad Ripple High School, again, I, I was I was actually playing in the pit orchestra for the school musical. This was the second year that I had done that, and that was a new experience for me. Uh, I loved it. It was, it was awesome. And uh, to see these two components, you know, uh, the musical component, which I was a part of, you know, and then the acting and the performing, the performers up top and how these things work together. And I remember – the band director at Broad Ripple had only been there about a year before I got there. He's African-American. And there was a huge divide at Broad Ripple. The, the band was principally about 24 uh, students. It was very small and uh, really not much cared for. Uh, there, there was a lot of, I mean, the instruments were in disrepair. Um, it, it, was, it was on the, the polar opposite side of the school building, from the choir, which was lovely and well celebrated, and the valedictorians, you know, it was it was definitely a racial divide, also very clear. Anyway, we mm-hmm. were in rehearsal, and I remember one of the 
the white actors in in the musical uh, stopped everything and just went on an assault at the band director. And it definitely had a tone like, you're out of order. This is not how you speak to a, another adult, uh, you know, a teacher, uh, anything like that. It was way out on the edges. And it made me very, very uncomfortable. What made me more uncomfortable than that was when the department head, who was also the choir director, uh, came up behind him and chimed in with the same tone against the band director. Well, I immediately did not – that didn't set too well with me, and I sat there and, and just sort of simmered on that. I, I was like, something's got to be done. That's wrong. That is so wrong. And everybody's like, shut up and play. And I'm like, no, I won't shut up. This is wrong. This is wrong. And so I tried to figure out what to do. And I remember going to the band director, and I said, you know, that was really wrong what they did to you, and I'm going to do something. He says, well, Bill Myers, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to know, but I'm going to do something. Watch. And then I came up with this idea that I was going to audition for the choir. And I told him, and he said, And at this the point, there, and were said, no, there were no black people in the choir, right? It was 100% white. So you were auditioning for a choir that there was no one at all in it that looked like you. Yeah, yeah. And so I went down to the music department office to talk to the choir director, who's the music department head. She said, may I help you? As if I was a stranger or a pizza guy that walked in. I'd been there two years. And I said, yes, my name's Billy Myers, and I'm in the band, and I would like to audition for the choir. And she said, have you ever been in choir? I said, no. She said, well, then you'll have to be in boys' choir. I said, what's that? And she basically told me it was like sort of a remedial or beginning music sort of thing. I said, well, I'm not beginning music. I said, I'm pretty confident I may know more music than everybody in the choir. I said, I'm just asking for you to hear me sing. <laughs> and if I'm no good, then... And she said, no, absolutely not. You'll have to go into boys' choir. And I, I walked out. And I went to the band room, and he said, what happened? And I said, they, she wouldn't let me in. He said, I told you. Later in the year, there was a talent show that came about, and I went down and I auditioned, and I got in it. And it was a role that I could do, uh, performing many of the moocher of all things, which I happened to be Cat mm -hmm. Calloway and something I knew. So I went in, mm -hmm. and I got cast in the show. Well, not only did I get cast in it, which was my first sort of outing as an actor thing, uh, I wound up winning Best Supporting Actor in that. Wow. Monday morning comes, and I get summoned to the music department. And now the music department head's tone was totally different. Oh, Billy, you're so wonderful. You're so wonderful, blah, blah, blah. You, want, you expressed an interest in being in choir. What choir would you like to be in? And, of course, there was the, the concert choir, there was the swing choir, and then there was the elite madrigals. And I looked at her and I said, hmm, all of them. <laughs> and she laughed, and I said, no, really, all of them. My schedule can handle it, all of them. And so, so she placed me in all of the choirs, which kicked a wow. few people that were upperclassmen right on out of the mix. <laughs> and then during the summer, I became the drum major of the marching band, and I was out rehearsing, and I got wind that the upcoming musical was West Side Story. I'd seen that a million times. Went to the public library, got the score, learned all the songs, and I had the score and the soundtrack and the, uh, the uh, a movie soundtrack and the Broadway cast album. I was singing this stuff, and I showed up for the auditions. Now, all summer, everybody was like, that was in choir, said, you'd make a great Bernardo. And I knew that was going to be the case. And so when I went in, they said, what are you auditioning for? And I said, Tony, will you accept another role? I said, absolutely not. 
Will you accept stage crew? No. Will you accept chorus? No. Well, why won't you accept these? I, because I'm the drum major of the marching band. This is fall, and this is our peak season. I'm very busy, so it's going to be worth my while, or I'm not doing it. Hmm. I got cast as Tony. This was the breakthrough. Wow. So now I'm standing center stage looking down in the pit orchestra at my band director and my fellow bandmates. But I was able to get inside that, penetrate that wall, if you will. And suddenly people start to get to know me. And they go, well, he's not half bad. And then they start to ease into the band. So let me flash forward what happened. I said the band was 24, stumbling, fumbling, sort of, a uh, very ragtag operation. We became the top jazz band in the state. The band expanded in size in those two years to about 84 members when I graduated, and it was about 50-50 wow. as far as the racial composite. Wow. So that type of – so it's always been an issue of activism. There was something that called me into that. I didn't get on stage and want to act because I wanted to just do that thing. No, I was terrified, but I knew I had to. Because something mm. had to change. Something had I to change. I picked up the trumpet because I couldn't speak. So this thing allowed me to speak. So it was always some, some, some reason that was a social issue. I continued pursuing acting. I wound up continuing to do community theater and then, you know, went on to University of Cincinnati and so on and so forth. Came back, uh, moved to Chicago moved to New York, landed a soap opera, did a couple of years on that, then spent another six years or so on Broadway. It just kept going because mm -hmm. I wanted to make sure that somebody that looked like me could look up on that stage and see mm -hmm. someone that looked like them. It was so important because I sought that and did not have many people that I could look at, you know, and see me. I couldn't see me in this. So I'm looking at stories on TV, on stage, of a world that I don't belong in. Mm. And I knew I belonged in it because I was here. And so right. that's, that's the kind of thing I want to say. So, so leveraging the creative and entertainment field to affect social change, that's why I do it. Mm. That's why I do it because that's my contribution to the world is to so somehow you found bring a that together where you could bring Absolutely. your brilliance, where you knew you Absolutely. could be brilliant and you could bring your whole self and all of your passion in order to create change. You Absolutely. did it because you needed a voice and you found a way to have one, and then you showed up, you stepped up, and you kept stepping yeah. up over and over again. Yeah, and I've never stopped. With every endeavor, it's, it seems like it's always attached to, to, to something that needs to be done. And mm -hmm. uh, and when you look around and nobody else is doing it, you find yourself looking in the mirror, and I guess I guess it's me. Right. I guess this is my calling. This is what I'm seeing. This is what needs to be done. Uh, Hallie Bryant was one of the, the uh, original Globetrotters, and he was the first African-American Mr. Basketball in the state of Indiana. Hallie's a good friend of mine. And uh, Hallie has a phrase that says, find a need and fill it. Find a hurt and heal it. Mm. That's so good. Well, we've only got about three minutes left. I know we want to very much hear Emmy and why you didn't come out right away with it, why you're doing it now. I don't know that we have any time to do that justice here. 
um, if you want to say something or two about that, but I'll definitely be coming back to interview more about that. Uh, but, you know, in, in the next three minutes, what can you tell us about what you want people to hear about all of this? With regards to the Emmy Award, is that, is that what you're The Emmy Award or even it? what we were talking about, about uniting the divide. And I don't know that we have time to get into the full Emmy story. Um, yeah, But yeah. I know it, it was a racially motivated thing for you to not share it. And so I don't know if yeah. you even want to speak to that. But okay, well, what, you know, award, what you need to know from here. Yeah, well, the Emmy Award was for a role um, in, in a show called Fast Break to Glory, the Jusable Panthers. Jusable High School is, is on the south side of Chicago. And it was a carbon copy store of Christmas Addicts. Uh, in fact, those players there played Christmas Addicts because at the time the leagues were segregated. So black teams had to travel a long way to play other black teams. Hmm. So DuSable High School was the first black team in the nation to compete for a state tourney one year before Christmas Addicts did here. So, so I'm going to fast forward you through this that. part of the story just yeah. because we're almost out of time. But you oh, found no, it's fine. You won the and why didn't you people right away? Because my experience was African-Americans or black people that won awards it oftentimes, instead of increasing their value, started to, like, sideline them. Uh, mm. It happened with Sidney Poitier. It happened with Hattie McDaniel. It happened with Lou Gossett. These were the first three African-Americans to win Academy Awards, and it was like the kiss of death. After that, they didn't get the top scripts coming at them. In fact, mm. it, was, it was like you're getting too big for your britches and was a kiss of death. So when I won that award, for me, it was like, do I want to say this? Do I want to go out and proclaim and, and that I won this award knowing what I know, that this could shut you down? Mm. And so I kind of put it down and pushed it down and pushed it down. That was 32 years ago. Now I'm ready to sing that song and, and because now is the I'm time. proud of it. Absolutely, mm. I'm proud of it. I was never ashamed of it. I was just afraid of what what it might do as far as debilitating me uh, from from moving forward. And uh, now I don't is feel the that time that you are finding your voice. I'm so thrilled that you found it to bring it here. I'm so thrilled that you were here to share with us. There's so much more we'd love to learn from you, but we are at the very end. So this is again Carla Taylor, Bring Your Brilliance, Inspired Choices Network. Bill Myers inspires is who we're talking to, and this is your reminder to go out and find your voice, people. Thanks be for brave, listening to another episode of you. Bring Your Brilliance with Carla Taylor. For the latest updates and info on personal branding, please follow and interact with Carla Taylor on LinkedIn. And be sure to visit www.itstimetobringit.com. Join Carla Taylor every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, 9 a.m. Central, 8 a.m. Mountain, and 7 a.m. Pacific on InspiredChoicesNetwork.com.